Ready to form Voltron. Mega thrusters are go! Go Voltron Force! Does hearing that make you think back to a time when you sat cross-legged in front of the television with a bowl of cereal? Or to a moment when you were envious of a classmate who brought a Voltron toy to school? If so, you're probably a kid of the 80s. I mean, it was huge, like on the playground for me with all my friends. Everybody could choose a different pilot and everybody could play along. That's Joaquim Dos Santos, one of the showrunners of Netflix's reboot, Voltron, Legendary Defender. He was a big fan of the original series back in the day. Lauren Montgomery, the show's other showrunner, also has childhood memories of the original series. But not all of them were fond ones. One episode that traumatized me, which was this episode <laughs> where Hagar's cat comes with a knife and just like stabs the princess. And then and as a kid, I was like, oh my God. For those who missed the original series, the show follows five pilots. Keith, Hunk, Lance, Pidge, and Sven. They command robot lions, which when combined, form a mega robot called Voltron. Their mission is to protect the planet Eris and its ruler, Princess Alora, from the evil warlord King Zarkon and a witch called Hagar. The series only lasted a little over a year, from September 1984 until November 1985, but its impact on the children who watched has lived on. And the franchise has kept going, not only in the minds of these 80s kids, but through three follow-up series, a bunch of comic books, and a whole lot of toys. In 2016, Joaquim and Lawrence reboot of the franchise, Voltron Legendary Defender, premiered on Netflix and blasted through eight seasons before coming to an end in 2018. The showrunners paid homage to the source material while putting a new spin on it for a modern, more inclusive audience by using a blend of CGI and anime-influenced traditional animation that Lauren and Joaquin perfected on their previous shows, Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. In the premiere episode, Shiro, the new leader of the five Voltron space pilots gives one of those pilots, Pidge, some advice. If you get too worried about what could go wrong, you might miss a chance to do something great. That line could have also worked as a mantra for Joaquim and Lauren as they faced the pressures of adapting such a classic. Sure, things could have gone wrong, but as they found out while working on the show for eight seasons, it was better to forget about all those concerns and just aim for the kind of greatness they felt while watching the original when they were kids. I'm your host, Brandon Jenkins, and this is Behind the Scenes Animation. This season, we're focusing on animated shows, and today, we're diving into Voltron, Legendary Defender. Before this new Voltron project came into their lives, Lauren and Joaquin learned the ropes of animation and honed their craft on other shows that might ring a bell for people who were young in the 80s and 90s. I'll let Lauren and Joaquin tell you the rest. My first entry job was like at Sony TV animation at the time. So I worked on like Men in Black. Do you remember the Men in Black animated series? Yes, dude. Yeah. Yes. Worked on that for a little bit. Worked on, uh, there was a Starship Troopers CG series that like time has forgotten. And <laughs> a lot of people think it's probably better that way. 
And Lauren, I think I want to say, did you start on Masters of the Universe? Yeah. So I was like drawing all these burly men. And I had drawn like nothing but like Disney princesses up until that point. And so I was like, oh God, I have to draw all these muscles. And it was kind of a running joke because all of my Masters of the Universe had very like ladylike legs for a while until I nice. figured out like how to draw boy hips. Like, oh yeah, boys don't really have hips, but they just had very like luscious lady legs for a bit there. I'm totally not in control of this, but if we have an option, I want to name this episode Boy Hips. There you go. Let's go. <laughs> what I thought was interesting is that a lot of your properties, they are very American properties, you know, minus a few like uh, Legends of Korra, just in the animation style. So I'm curious, what was your relationship with anime like before you all took on this project? I think we were both pretty big fans of it for like a decent chunk of our lives. Even when I was young and I didn't realize I was watching it, like I was still watching Voltron, like the original Voltron as a kid. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea that that wasn't an American cartoon. <laughs> like I was just like, this is for me, you know? Yeah. And then you grow up and you get a little savvier and you realize, oh, hey, this was something that was not made in America, but then was kind of recut and dubbed. And I realized that for a lot of cartoons that I grew up with. And then other cartoons where they were still American cartoons like DuckTales, but the animation was done by a Japanese studio. And you'd start to kind of get savvy to like, oh, all the good animation comes from, <laughs> from Japan. <laughs> but like true anime didn't start really becoming easily available, I think, until you know, I was considerably older. I want to say like I started being able to watch things like on Toonami yep. with Cartoon Network. Before that, you had to catch some sort of weird 3 a.m., 2 a.m. broadcast on the sci-fi channel or something. And that was your exposure. I don't know, there was like a storytelling that was a little more sophisticated. Like a lot of the cartoons when I was a kid, like I, I call it the ultimate reset where every episode just starts with the same characters and you know that that problem's gonna get solved at the end and there's not gonna be any lasting consequences because all those characters are gonna be in the next episode. So no one's gonna die and die for real. But anime wasn't that at all. They would have like one story going all the way through. And so when I saw Robotech for the first time. Transformative. Yeah. My mind was blown. I was like, oh my God, the story's still going? How have we not just like reset? The only way I could describe it at the time was it was an animated soap opera to me. Because like, ah, soap opera stories keep going. And so does this. It became something that I didn't find until my teens but once I found it, I was like locked in. And so through the entirety of our careers, I'd say we were huge fans of anime. We looked to it a lot for inspiration, even to the point where sometimes on Justice League, I would do shots and, and Bruce Tim would say like, uh, that's too anime. Like, like <laughs> he would like slap our hands. Like, you can't do that. We can't be that anime. We can go a little bit, but we can't go that far. Being a couple years older, like I got into this situation with my friends where we'd go to like the Shrine Auditorium for these comic book conventions and you'd get basically like bootleg copied tapes of like Dragon Ball Z or Gunbuster, MD Geist or Megazone. Like those were like videos you would get. It was like being at a casino. You didn't know what it was. You just knew it was anime. You got home, you put it in, you were like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Or I'm totally confounded by this. It's not translated at all. I don't know what's happening, but it looks gorgeous. It was a huge influence. And when we were kids, like Lauren said, we didn't even know we were watching it. If you watch the intro to uh, the G.I. Joe movie from the 80s, I mean, it's just anime effects, anime explosions all over the place with this like super American property. And so you didn't even know you were taking it in. You sort of hinted at it earlier, but I'm curious, um, did you have a relationship with the original Voltron series before working on this revival? Yeah, we both did for sure. 
I think Joaquin probably has a better memory of it from his childhood. I just have these really hazy memories. Like I remember watching it, but I didn't remember a ton of it. I loved their outfits and I remember there was a lady pilot. I was super stoked on that. But beyond that, I didn't remember a ton of the actual stories. I mean, it was huge, like on the playground for me with all my friends. Everybody could choose a different pilot and everybody could play along. It was it was a big group sort of like play thing. The toys were bananas, like they were cast iron, insane, like they felt like, you know, if you threw them at a kid, it could cause bodily harm. <laughs> they were They were great. But I think Voltron sort of on the whole, it's something we talked about, I think, early on when we were like talking about the series when it was like in development, is that you have a memory of the robot. You have a memory of the robot fighting the Robeasts. You have a memory of the different pilots. But beyond that, it sort of falls into this like fog of, I don't really know what the story was, Yeah, but I know it was awesome. That's what you held on to. But I th- I think it's those it was those things it was like the the like pure nostalgia the like fun that you remember sitting in front of the TV that that a lot of people locked into. How did you end up deciding that you know you were going to reboot the series that you wanted to do it? Was it already in the works and someone approached you to, or was this like a passion project that you all had spoken about after years of working together? Yeah, I mean we were still wrapping up Cora when they started talking about doing the show that Voltron was even on the table, and then I had had a preliminary discussion. And, you know, Voltron was something that legitimately, like Lauren and I would go to lunch and we would just geek out on like memories of of having watched the show or like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we could do this or we could do that. So when the opportunity presented itself, Lauren was the first person that I talked to. And when we both went to DreamWorks to sort of interview for it, I think they just picked up on the fact that we were genuinely excited. There wasn't like an agenda to do other, you know, something other than just have fun and make it something sort of like our child's mind's eye remembered seeing. They could feel how excited we were about the property from just a purely nostalgic point of view. Yeah. And we've been working in American animation for a while and being huge fans of anime, we were also just huge fans of like giant mecha robots. (laughs) And this like Voltron was like, oh, this is our chance to do like a a giant mecha robot and we you know we don't live in japan we don't work on actual anime this is our american chance to to basically do a dope sci-fi robot mech show and like we can make it so cool and we get to use a property that we genuinely enjoy i remember like joaquin saying like dreamers got voltron i was like dude we could make that so good and then of course i immediately like was just like bitter i was like oh they'll just pick some random asshole to do it like because that's generally how animation works and i didn't for a second think that you know in a few months we would be those random assholes (laughs) and we were there you go You know, you guys are dealing with nostalgia. And like you said, it's sort of in the zeitgeist, right? Like everyone has personal feelings surrounding this property. So I'm curious if you could talk us through the process of balancing, trying to stay true to the source material, but also, you know, modernizing it, putting your own spin on this classic. We both worked on a lot of adaptations. And I think the thing that we've learned is you can't be too beholden to the original, but you also can't just throw everything aside and be like, I'm doing mine. Mm. You can't betray it. You have to really walk 
that fine line. For us, it's always just been a gut feeling. And a lot of that, honestly, like in my opinion, is you kind of have to allow a little bit of that time to kind of forget the source material. Because once you do that, you kind of can clue into what it is that you remember. And then that's how you know, that's the stuff that stands out to everyone. That's the stuff that most people are going to remember themselves. And as long as you can remain true to the spirit and the essence of that thing, then you'll get the same idea across in your version. Visually, like we sort of said from the get-go, like Voltron needs to be recognizable instantly. Like mm. there were definitely meetings we had where people would suggest like, oh, can the robot talk? Or, you know, they'd show art that looked way more sort of like militarized or sort of Halo-esque at times. And we were like, that's not yeah. the appeal of the robot. The spirit of the robot is this colorful thing. It needs to pass the quote unquote squint test for people who remember the original. And then beyond that, you have the latitude to go where where you want to go. I'm also wondering, are there any other like specifics, whether it's like storylines or elements that either you remembered or that you sort of mined in the source material that you were saying, okay, we really like this, we want to keep it, or we want to try to find a way to bring this back? One thing that I remember very specifically from the original was that like weird, creepy fascination that like Lotor had with Allura. Soon the princess will be my slave. She shall dance for my pleasure and serve me when I call. Her kingdom shall be my slave dungeon. <laughs> and we knew like, okay, we can't do the like perv out version of it, <laughs> but we can kind of pay homage to it by doing like a more respectable version that, that makes sense for the version of these characters that we're creating in this show. We accomplished something amazing today. And it would have never happened had it not been for you. It is a moment that I truly will never forget. Another one was this like element that you couldn't quite place your finger on, but there was this kind of like Arthurian element to Voltron. The Altaian backstory, that was all very Arthurian and, and uh, mm -hmm. Allura's father and, and the way that all played out, that all felt sort of like high fantasy stuff. And that was something that I think the original show blended really, really elegantly. Yeah, you've got the sci-fi element, which is like, oh, they're in space and there's alien invasions, but you've got like this fantasy, like there's swords and there's armor and there's a castle and there's a princess. And yeah, it, it was a lot of fun and it wasn't some, we didn't want to just throw that away and just, okay, well now it's all just laser guns yeah. and ships. You know, we, we loved that aspect of it. Remember, Princess, 70% of diplomacy is appearance. Then 29% is manners, decorum, formalities, and chit-chat. It's really only 1%, uh... Serious business about fighting for the freedom of the universe? Yes, that. Are there any new elements that you've added to Voltron that, you know, maybe a fan that didn't know the original, you think they'd be really excited about and that you're really proud that you were able to uh, fit into this new property? One of the first things that I wanted to do I wanted to make Pidge a girl. I can't man up. I'm a girl. I was so scared that we wouldn't be able to do it because when you work in American animation and you know that you're going to work on a show that is meant to be for boys like 6 to 11, there was no, there was never a doubt. You're like the perfect example of like how a girl could grow up in the 80s and be influenced by cartoons that were, I, I swear to you, and this is not to be like offensive to the era, like we've evolved since then, but like these shows were specifically either made for little boys or little girls and they were marketed that way. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Lauren has this like amazing story of saying like, hey, I would have totally been into Thundercats had I been taken into the toy aisle that had Chitara and I'd seen that stuff. But 
literally there was like a separation of of the genders. I literally had no idea that Thundercast toys existed because all I knew was the pink aisle. I didn't get to wander around Toys R Us alone. Like I went with my parents and they took me to the girl aisle and then I picked out a toy from the girl aisle. And then like I would get She-Ra action figures and then I would go to my cousin's house and he would have He-Man. And I was like, where are you getting these? Like They're not at the store I go to. Like I just didn't understand. And it was just one of those things where if you don't cut kids off from it, if you put a show in a place and let any kid look at it, you'll get cross over. Yeah. You'll get girls that like it too. It's thankfully like becoming a thing of the past now, but I think definitely when we were starting and even when we were first sort of pitching out Voltron, there's sort of this like, hey, this is a boys toys action adventure show. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of like the box that it was being put in. Yeah. All of our meetings, when we would talk about like marketing strategy, would always be like for the boys and their dads. And then I would be like, and girls might watch too. But they'd be like, okay, great. Yeah, that's great, Lauren. But, you know, knowing that I grew up with this stuff and knowing that like I may be rare, but I'm not the only girl in the world that likes this stuff. I wanted to try to get a little more female rep in the show. And so DreamWorks ended up being really cool and like, on board. They're like, yeah, we'll make Paige a girl. Toy companies a little bit less so, but DreamWorks on board. And I swear to you, I thought I had like achieved the impossible. I was like, oh my God, (laughs) I have two girls in a boy show. Like I am the effing savior of the world. And it's like, what, we have seven main characters and two are girls. It's not exactly equality, but I'd still like, I had achieved something that was very, very difficult to achieve. And so, so I was pretty stoked that we got to have Pidge be a girl and that we got to have her be a girl that represented being female, but not necessarily needing to be extremely feminine. And she gets to just be herself, but still be a girl and still be valuable. Oh, you got a cute little Bayard. (gasps) Yeah, it is pretty cute. I think also, you know, when we worked on Avatar, it opened up our eyes a lot. When you'd go to like fan events or Comic-Con, oftentimes it was families coming up and saying like, hey, we all watched a show together. And it was babies on down to the grandparents all watching together. And they all found something that they could like really appreciate about the show and characters that they could relate to and associate with. Having worked on Avatar and on Korra, those shows are some of the shows that had some of the most well-crafted female characters in them, at least for standard American animation, action-adventure fair. And so I was thrilled to just be able to work with a team that wanted to continue that tradition. I hope that the uh, representation quotient is going to be a little more welcoming to females on the screen and just the female viewer in general, because I think women as an audience have been kind of not really catered to in a lot of animation. Like I've been told many times, girls don't watch animation, girls don't like action, girls won't buy toys. Like those are kind of the three things that I've had people tell me. And I... I am the girl that did all those things. So I'm like, "Eh, I don't know if I believe you. (laughs) And I know for a fact there are so many girls in the generations under me that are into all of this stuff. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's changing like amazingly rapidly in the the best possible way. The the face of Comic-Con changed, I mean, within a five-year span. I remember the first Comic-Con that I went to when I was like 17. It was just dudes. It's just opened up in such a beautiful way. Hopefully it continues to. Looking back, like, what has this project meant to you both? It was a huge, like, learning experience for me. Like, Joaquin and I had both 
run things before, but smaller scale things. And this was kind of our first big, like on our own studio, like it was a 78 episode order, which was unheard of. Insane. And at the time we thought it was like the most awesome thing because like A, it was 78 episodes. B, it was for Netflix, which Netflix embraces serialization. And that was everything we'd ever wanted. Up until that point, American animation was not down with serialization. It was mostly television networks, and they didn't like things that you couldn't rerun in any order. Mm. If you had to rerun it in serialization, like those reruns for some reason did not perform very well for them. And so therefore they couldn't get the ad revenue. But Netflix loves it. They love serialization. This was our dream come true. It was a dream that we never really thought we'd even get. We thought we were just going to be kind of stuck in like the mild serialization, but one-off show world for the rest of our careers. We eventually came to realize that 78 episodes is an enormous task <laughs> and it almost killed us. And at a certain point, we're just like, what What do we do with these episodes? Like we have 78 of them. Luckily, we had like a story that kind of kept us moving and, and kept the story fresh I think if we had been doing just kind of like one-off episodes, we probably would have run out of ideas at some point. I don't know if I would do that again. (laughs) (laughs) I totally agree. It was sort of like this double-edged sword. And I think the other thing that we should mention is that we naively went into it without any breaks in between the 78 episodes. I mean, we were stoked. It was like four years worth of work and animation, which you like never, ever get. And it, it, it takes a toll. Even something as simple as like a three-day weekend can can mess you up a little bit because you're like, yeah, I get Monday off. And then you come in on Tuesday, you're like, oh God, I've got I've to make up a day's worth of work. Yeah, <laughs> there's 15 fires to put out. Uh, it, was, it was a huge learning experience for us. And I think just on multiple levels, even stuff that's like, you know, outside of actually creating the animation, like how you craft story, how you sort of think about keeping morale up on a crew, stuff that, that, you know, people who are watching the show don't usually like take into consideration when you're taking it in. It's, it's about managing humans, you know, you're dealing with people and that was hugely, it was was a big learning experience for us. Yeah. There was a lot of um, like misunderstanding, I would say, between uh, the fans and the show as to like how long it takes to make an episode. <laughs> and so like like a, an episode would come out and they would be like, oh, you know, they got that from like this fan fiction and be like, no, no, that episode was done a year before <laughs> like that fan fiction ever like appeared on the Internet. But like it's a hard thing to understand how much work, how many human beings, how how many hours of pencil mileage go into these things. And navigating things like consumer products, stuff that you just don't Mm -hmm. think about, like being in like meetings where you had to think of story stuff that was going to affect things outside of story, I think was a really unique experience for us. Like, how can we get a missile pack in season whatever (laughs) onto this guy's back? And you're like, okay. Yeah, for sure. There was like, I mean, there was an entire sequence of like upgrades that the lines needed. And then we're like, okay, we got to work these upgrades into the show. But we've also got a story we're trying to tell. And I'm like, I'm not sure if there's like a good freaking bazooka moment (laughs) in here when we're telling like this gripping story. But I I do think that that's the balance though, right? Is that we ended up making a show that had this story that almost like had no business having a story. Because at the end of the day, it was based on a property that like was a giant robot that was hacking through robeasts every episode and sort of like fell into this like very toy-etic sort of space. And so that that was the balance. And I, th- I think th- there were these weird learning experiences that we can't necessarily attribute to being like better drawers or better 
colorers, like we just got better at these other tools or learned about these other aspects of animation and, and, and uh, entertainment. Yeah. I think what's cool on my end is someone that's got to live through both iterations. Like I do remember very much the early iteration. I remember the first feeling of jealousy was seeing a kid bring the full robot to school for Friday show and tell. Oh yeah. And having a, and having a very big problem with that. Um, <laughs> but also very much like you all were talking about, um, like the toy aisles, right? You know, I have an older sister. Those aisles were split up and they were pink and one was like gunmetal and blue and to see you all do this work and add all these like common and nuanced touches to it and very much considering the non-animation pieces of animation i'm thinking about whoever that that's in the toy store today and they get to maybe have that voltron experience in the same aisle right or get to have like different characters that and buy a character that looks a little bit different or represent them or storylines that everyone can sit around and like you said comic-con's like that family environment it's tight to think about, you know? It's awesome to hear you say that, but it's something that I think we were sort of touched upon with Avatar, but like, you know, as we were sort of being able to craft Voltron, it's something that was definitely on the forefront of our minds. For sure. Like we knew what our directive was like, okay, you're being hired to make this show and this show, it's gonna have a toy line and those toys are probably gonna be marketed to young boys. But in our minds at all times was, we will give you that, but we will give you more. We will give you the show that hopefully will invite everyone to watch it. Yeah. We want to go farther. That's all for this week's Behind the Scenes. Next week, we'll be visiting the Kingdom of Dreamland and the series Disenchantment. We're talking with voice actors Abby Jacobson, Nat Faxon, and Eric Andre in a wild interview all about animation and comedy. Abby, Eric, let me in. (laughs) I want to hang out. (laughs) Beautiful. Behind the Scenes Animation is a Netflix and Pineapple Street Studios production. I'm your host, Brandon Jenkins. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thanks for listening.